Brothers and sisters, please turn with me in your Bibles to our text this morning, which comes from Revelation chapter 13, verses 11 to 18. Revelation chapter 13, verses 11 to 18. Revelation chapter 13, verses 11 to 18. Please then hear with me the reading of God's inspired Word. Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, and it spoke like a dragon. It exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence and makes the earth and its inhabitants Worship the first beast, whose mortal wound was healed. It performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of people. And by the signs that it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on the earth, telling them to make an image for the beast, that it was wounded by the sword and yet lived. And it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast, so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. Also, it causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead, so that no one could buy or sell unless he has the mark. That is, the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is 666. Thus far is a reading of God's Word. Well, brothers and sisters, last week we started uh, to look at this somewhat difficult chapter, didn't we? And... It's difficult uh, in the sense that there's so much imagery that needs to be unpacked, isn't there? So much looking back to the Old Testament. Uh, It's difficult because of all the voices of the interpreters and the commentators and what they tell you that the text means, although there is variation amongst them. Uh, It's also difficult because, let's be honest, we bring our own baggage to the text as well. And yet, brothers and sisters, what I hope we began to see, at least last week, as we looked at these first ten verses, is that it's not a a difficulty that is insurmountable. It's not a difficulty that's insurmountable so long as by the grace of God we kind of pick our heads out from the history books and from the newspaper clippings and we just look at the Word of God. Right? We look at the Scriptures, both Old Testament and New Testament, to derive our meaning and our understanding of the text. Right? Even if we are unable to say what kind of every minute point precisely means, what we can say is what the, the big picture is. Right? We can say what the overall meaning is, what the big picture is conveying to us, and for what purpose is that point being made. I think those things are and do become clear for us. In verses 1 to 10, last week, John directed our attention to the the book of Daniel as we began to look at the image of this first beast. And as we turned back to Daniel 7, what did we find? We we found there these these four beasts that Daniel speaks of. 
And the four beasts, we said, represent what? They represent four kingdoms of the world. Four separate kingdoms of the world. But in the book of Revelation, this one beast we saw, though, is not representative of, of it, just one kingdom. But rather, what was he? He was a composite of all of the wicked kingdoms described in the book of Daniel. And so the message was clear. Right? That the, the beast is not any one kingdom that opposes Christ, but rather... The beast is any and all kingdoms that oppose Christ and seek to persecute His people. We've learned that it's any and all kingdoms that persecute God's people that we must be watchful over. As we've seen last week, that ultimately it's the devil who is operating behind these world governments to persecute the people of God. So that as John then writes to the saints in the first century, as this book is being written, For them, for John, for his hearers, the embodiment of this beast was Rome. But today, in other countries, as Christians maybe are are driven underground, being persecuted with the threat of violence or death or imprisonment, right? it's those government regimes, it's those dictatorships that are the embodiment of the beast today. And we've also seen Last week, the trans-historical nature of this beast as well. right? That the beast just isn't of one time period, but rather he transcends the entire church age. We've seen that with verses 7 and 8, where we were told that the beast was given all authority over every tribe, every people and language and nation, all who dwell on earth, everyone whose name is not written in the Lamb's book of life. He universalizes Right, The beast there for us. And so we've seen that this is a beast that is going to continue to rise up through history. right, Opposing Christ, opposing His church, seeking to make war on her because she refuses to bow down and conform to the practices of this world. right, Which include to looking up to the government as God in place of our Lord. Now, what we see in our text today of this second beast is that the second beast now supports the first beast. Right? He supports the beast that we read about last week. Right? It is the role of the second beast to, to point people to the first beast so that they might worship him. Now, last week we read that the first beast came from the sea. This week, what happens? The second beast comes from where? The earth. And this ought to make perfect sense for us, too. Especially in light of the fact that Satan and the beast are trying to do what? They're trying to mimic God. Right? Satan and the two beasts are trying to mimic the Holy Trinity. And what do we know about the Trinity? It is the Father who sends the Son. And as mediator, the Son does what? The will of the Father. And it is Father, Son who send the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit's role is to do what? Point people back to the Son so that they might worship Him. It's the same thing we see this Trinity do here. right? The, the, the Satan, the, the dragon, he, he calls out from the sea the, the first beast. And what does he do? He sends him out to do his will. And now what happens? The second beast rises up from the earth. And what does he do? What is his role? To point people back to the first beast so that they might worship it. It makes perfect sense. Also, think about chapter 10. 
Christ as He came with the little scroll for John to devour. What are we told that Jesus did? As He arrived, we were told He was described as having one foot in the sea and one foot on the earth. Which symbolized what? Worldwide sovereignty. And so, brothers and sisters, this is what we see too. right? Satan, as he calls forth the first beast and the second beast from earth and from sea, it represents Satan's attempt at worldwide domination, just as our Lord exercises His sovereignty over the whole world. But now, unlike the first beast, who had ten horns and seven heads and was very overt in his power, the second beast looks nothing like the first beast if we just look at them outwardly. right? The second beast is described how for us? As having two horns like a lamb. Here we see the second beast doing what? He's trying to parody the messianic lamb. That is what he is trying to do. But what, is, what we ought to see though is that the, the second beast is far more dangerous than the first beast. He is far more dangerous because he looks like a lamb, but he speaks like the dragon. Right? The first beast was, was very overt, right? He was very obvious, very open. We know that when someone is a troublemaker, when it's open and obvious, we know to stay away from them, right? This is what makes the second beast so much more treacherous, right? Because he looks gentle, right? He looks inviting. Right? But all the while, he's drawing unsuspecting sinners to the worship of the first beast. And so the question, obviously, I'm sure, arises in all of our minds, and that is, well, who is this second beast? Right? Who is this beast who points people back to the idolatrous worship of the first beast? Well, that leads us to our first point this morning, then, which is the identity of the second beast. That is our Our first point this morning, the identity of the second beast. Now, what our text doesn't tell us this morning, but what we'll learn later on, is that the second beast is also the false prophet. He's the false prophet. We read about this in Revelation 19, verse 20. And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet who in its presence had done signs by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. Exactly what's described of the second beast in our text today. And so the second beast is a false prophet. Why? Because he's luring people to the worship of the first beast. Of the worship of, of worldly, evil, wicked kingdoms. Earthly kingdoms. Right? He, he's leading people to the worship of the state which a false prophet does. Because a true prophet does what? A true prophet is, is tasked with leading people to God. Right? The true God. But didn't Jesus tell us that this is exactly what was going to happen? Right? In the Olivet Discourse, Matthew 24, 24, Jesus says this very thing. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and do what? They're going to perform great signs and wonders so as to lead people astray, if possible, even the elect. Which tells us what then, brothers and sisters? 
that as we consider the second beast and this false prophet, we are not to think of him as just someone in the outside world, someone outside of the church, but rather we are to see that he too operates in the church. Right? Oftentimes that's where we find the false prophet, isn't it? In Matthew chapter 7, verse 15, Jesus says what? Beware of false prophets who come in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. Right? He's talking about within the body. Right within the church, beware of these things. So what do these false prophets do? They encourage compromise with the state. Right? They encourage compromise with the culture. But they don't come outright and say it. Right? They couch everything that they say and do in this Christian language. They make it seem reasonable. And don't we see this today in, in many Christian denominations? Uh, this is a problem like the PCA is dealing with, isn't it? Where they are uh, electing you know, gay and lesbian uh, ministers to stand up in the pulpit and to proclaim the Word of God. But why? Why is that? Well, they're compromising with the state. They say, look, we've, we've come a long way in this world. Right? This is now legalized. Right? Gay marriage is legalized. This is something that ought to be normalized. And so we ought to we ought to follow suit with the world. Or think about abortion. How many Christians believe that abortion is something that a Christian can do and participate in? Well, why is that? Because false prophets have been telling them it's okay, that it's a woman's choice over their body. Right? Christian folks are being told, listen to the state. Right? Listen to what the state has to say. They are the, the voice of moral virtue. We need to get out of our and uh, those and antiquitous ideologies that we held on to and we need to become more progressive. Right? We need to, to compromise with the world. But brothers and sisters, we need to see no. Right? That's not what we are to do. Right? We are not to compromise. We are not to follow culture, follow anything that is opposite the Word of God. Right? We are to be leaders in the world, not a compromiser. And these types then of false prophets, were they not operating within those early century churches that we read about in chapters 2 and 3. We've said this on multiple occasions. Is this work of the false prophet, was that not being done by the Nicolaitans? Were they not pointing people to idolatrous worship? Were they not saying sexual immorality is okay because everyone else is doing it? Is this not what Jezebel was promoting? Right? Eating food sacrificed to idols at pagan festivals and engaging in sexual immorality? Why? Because culture says it's okay? Doing the very same thing the false prophet does? And yet, brothers and sisters, we have to see that not only are these false prophets within the church, but there is false prophets outside of the church, especially in that early first century as well. Uh, you had the priests who resided uh, in the pagan temples, who did tricks, and who did pseudo-miracles before the people uh, in Asia Minor there, in order that they would bow down and worship the statue of Caesar and declare that He is Lord. And so ultimately, as we've seen last week, the, the beast represents anti-Christian government. When we ask the question, what is the identity of the second beast or this false prophet? Well, ultimately, it represents anti-Christian religion. That is what we see. It represents anti-Christian religion. And like the devil, though, it is dressed up in truth. What do we read in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 14 and 15? Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. 
So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. And we see this. Why? Because these two beasts represent and are representative of Satan, who is doing the operating and the work behind the scenes. Now, the way in which the second beast, though, gets people to worship the first beast is by these great signs, we're told, right? that rival that of Elijah and Moses. Now, it's a bit interesting, isn't it, that these are the same kind of works that we read about the two witnesses did in chapter 11 who represented the church. Remember in Revelation chapter 11, verse 5, it portrays the two witnesses as kind of breathing fire out of their mouth which consumes their enemies. Which we said what? It symbolizes right the church's bold witness in the world of speaking God's truth which convicts and judges sinners. Right? Therefore, then, this second beast, as he proclaims his word, is a spokesperson for truth in the world. But in fact, he is a false teacher, a false prophet who speaks false words. Likewise, in the book of Exodus, right, Moses' prophetic authority was validated by what? By these mighty signs, wasn't it? But there were many of Pharaoh's magicians who were able to do the exact same thing through their work of the secret arts. I think there's a, a modern day example of this, we might say. How about the Roman Mass? Is this not a, a declaration of of doing a great sign, a great miracle, a great work, though that is a pseudo-work, a pseudo-miracle, as they claim to turn this bread and wine into the body and blood of Jesus Christ. This deception, though, causes people to then give in to the command to worship the first beast. And in the first century, there is much pressure being placed on the populace. There is much pressure being placed on the church Right to identify the emperor as divine, as being a divine being. And by the end of the first century, all these churches that we read about in chapters 2 and 3 have statues of the Caesar in their cities. And they have these pagan temples throughout their cities. And there those uh, pagan priests would stand outside and they did magic tricks. They were known for ventriloquism as well. Right? Which is maybe what we see here as he gives breath to the image of the beast. I think also what we ought to include, though, in their works is, is maybe demonic activity as well. Right? Demonic activity as well. But ultimately, what we see in verses 13 to 15, in the description of what the second beast does, I think we can, we can kind of break it down and say this, that the, the false prophet or the second beast is someone who uses deception to draw people away from the worship of God and lead them to the worship of of the first beast. Right? That is ultimately what the second beast is. That is who the, the false prophet is. Someone who deceives people, leading them away from the worship of God and to the worship of the first beast. And those who do not worship the first beast were told what happened to them. They were slain. Right? They were slain. The language who do not worship the image is actually pulled right from Daniel 3. Right there, what happens in Daniel 3? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are what? Right? They refuse to bow down and worship the image. So what? They are condemned to death. They are thrown in the fire to be slain. And now in our context where the refusal to commit idolatry likewise leads to death has arisen within first century Asia Minor. 
as Christians are pressured to worship Caesar as Lord or die. But the implication in pulling that language from Daniel 3 is to, is to think back to what happened in Daniel 3. Which is what? It's to cause us, as we think back to Daniel 3, and be encouraged by the fact that just as they did not bow the knee, but were placed in the fire, and were delivered out from that fire, that we too, as we don't compromise with the world, we don't compromise with the government, and we don't compromise with culture, that we too will be delivered through death, ultimately to our heavenly existence with our Lord. Right? That is encouragement that all Christians can take. And yet, brothers and sisters, we see again then the exact thing that I said last week. And that is, at the end of the day, there are only two sides, and both sides are calling you to worship them. Right? You have the Lord demanding our allegiance, calling us to His worship. But then you have these two beasts who ultimately are working for Satan, who is calling you to worship Him as well. And so, there is no middle ground. You cannot play the field. You cannot play the sides. You can't stand on the fence. You can't be a substitute. Right? You need to understand. Right? There is something all people worship. We were innately made to be worshipers. But in the beginning, who were we made to worship? Right? Worship the one true God. Right? The one true God who truly has worldwide dominion. Right? Who truly is sovereign over land and sea. Who doesn't need to deceive people to get them to worship Him nor needs to disguise Himself, but rather He openly reveals Himself to His people so that you might come and believe on Him. Right? Knowing that these the Satan, the beast, and the false prophet try to make up this unholy trinity, why do people follow after the fake and the phony and the fraud when you have the real thing right before your eyes inviting you to come and to trust in His Son and to believe and to have God and and He be yours and you be His. Why would you ever take the fake and the phony when the real thing is there calling out to you through the Gospel? Now the second beast tries to mirror God again, we're told, in verses 16 and 17. Please look with me there. Also it causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark that is the name of the beast or the number of its name. This leads us then to our second point this morning, which is the mark of the beast. Our second point is the mark of the beast. Now there are many theories out there about what this mark of the beast could be. I'm sure many of you have heard of them. Uh, it could be a computer chip, some say, you know, kind of placed in you. Maybe like a, a barcode across your forehead. Um, but I think if we keep just, you know, pushing along, using the same method we've been using, which is just looking to the Scriptures, we're going to find that it's actually something way more simpler than those things. Yes, the simple answer isn't going to sell millions of copies of books, like computer chips and barcodes on your forehead will, right? But we're not looking for the glamorous, we're looking for the truth, okay? And the truth is much simpler. And additionally, even if we think about it, if it is a computer chip, right? if it is a barcode, uh, 
what good would it do to the first century saints to whom this is being written? It doesn't no good at all. And so this is why we, we have to understand that whatever is being described is something that is, is known to them in their own day and age. Right? It is something that is a reality with them that's present in their own day. It's not something that just some people will know about in the future. It has to be something that is present with them in their own day. And I think as we kind of scour the book of Revelation, that there is kind of a parallel to this that might help us to decipher what this mark of the beast is. And what do you think that is? How about Revelation chapter 7? How about the sealing of the 144,000 who represent God's people? Now that sealing was not a physical sealing, was it? And yet, in Revelation chapter 7, verse 3, what are we told? That they were going to receive that seal on their foreheads. That's what we were told. But what was the sealing? The sealing was the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Right? The Holy Spirit coming upon God's people in such a way that they would be protected when the sealed judgments were unleashed upon the earth. And so we see, brothers and sisters, that the, the seal had a spiritual meaning. But that seal only sealed a certain group of people. It only sealed those who belonged to the people of God. And so today in our text, what do we see? We see the counterpart to that sealing. Right? We see the mark that everyone else receives who has not been sealed. And so we need to see that mark, though, in the same way that we see the seal. Not a physical mark, as it wasn't a physical seal, but a, a spiritual mark of sorts. It communicates a, a spiritual reality to us. And what is that spiritual reality? Well, the mark could be an allusion to the ancient practice of, of branding or tattooing uh, slaves or soldiers. And if this is what it is alluding to, then what do we think that that mark symbolically communicates? How about that they are the beast's property? Right? When you're branded or tattooed with someone's mark, you belong to them. You are theirs. Right? How about that, that mark likewise means that you are a, a faithful follower of that one who you've been marked with? Right? Just as the saints who have been sealed with the indwelling of the Holy Spirit are faithful followers of God. Right? So we have to see, it's not a physical mark, it's an invisible mark stamped upon the soul of the unbeliever. But why is it described as being stamped upon their forehead or their right hand? Again, we have to ask the question, what do they symbolize? What do they symbolize? How about being stamped on the forehead symbolizes the beast's control over your thoughts? How about receiving the mark on your hand? Right? His control over your deeds, your actions. Right? Wasn't ancient Israel told to bind the law on their foreheads and on their hands? Which communicated what? God was to be in control of everything they thought and everything they did. That they were to live their lives in submission to the will of God. And so too then is the mark of the beast, which is described symbolically as being on their foreheads and on their hands. They live their lives in submission and in worship of the beast. That is what the mark of the beast is. That is what the mark of the beast is. And so many tend toward that mark, don't they? So many seem to want the mark. Right? They want to be compromisers in the world. Because they want to be able to participate 
in all this world's enjoyments. Right? There are many people who profess to be Christian who live as compromisers because they don't want to lose out on all that they have amassed in life. If I stand up to my employer, if I stand up to the government, I might lose everything I have. So it's easier for me to be a compromiser. And yet, brothers and sisters, what we see is that no one is spared. No one is spared. All must receive some mark or some seal. This is what's highlighted by the fact that we're told that all, both small, great, rich, poor, free, and slave, are marked. It's an all-encompassing mark. All must receive it. No one escapes it. And what happens for those who do not receive the mark? We're told that they cannot buy or sell. Again, exactly what we read about earlier in the book of Revelation, isn't it? What does our Lord say in Revelation 2.9 about the church in Smyrna? I know your tribulation and your what? Poverty. Why were they poor? Remember, they would not participate in the trade guild festivals. Remember, they had a trade. Each trade served a pagan deity. They would have festivals where all were... It was mandatory. You go and you participate in that festival and you offer sacrifice and worship to that pagan deity. Well, Christians exempted themselves from it. And what happens? They lost their jobs. They lost their ability to buy and to sell. And so we see, brothers and sisters, that that those who are Christ, those who have the seal of the Holy Spirit, aren't compromisers and show their allegiance and loyalty to Christ by remaining faithful to Him. Right? Those who do not belong to Christ and have the mark of the beast are compromisers who demonstrate their allegiance and loyalty to the beast by compromising through things so that they don't have to endure any suffering for the sake of Christ or the Gospel. And as I was saying, I jumped ahead a bit. Many go after this marking. Right? Many go after this marking. Right? They, they compromise in all these ways, right? not wanting to lose out on what they have. They also compromise, though, in the manner in which they think. Right? They, they do what? They oftentimes compromise by splitting their mind between two things. Between the world and what the culture holds up and what Scripture says. But brothers and sisters, let us see that you cannot do that. Right? You cannot hold up the moral values of this world alongside biblical ethics. Right? It does not work. Why? Well, because what does Paul say? Paul says that as believers, we are to hold every thought captive to obey Christ. And the thoughts of this world oppose the thoughts of Christ, doesn't it? The world more and more is putting pressure on Christians to conform and compromise. We have a recent example of this this past week. I'm a, a sports fan. I don't get to watch much. Uh, but I try to keep up. And there's a story, I'm not sure if any of you heard about it, about this NHL hockey player who plays for the Philadelphia Flyers. And I think it was this past week or the week before, uh, the team decided that they were going to wear gay pride jerseys as they warmed up before the game. But there's one player who was a, a, a star player on the team, but who was a, a confessing believer who refused to go out and skate on the ice wearing that jersey. 
And so after the game, the media, of course, comes up to him looking for a good story. And they say, why didn't you wear that jersey with your teammates? And he says to them, very simply, it, just, it, it goes against what I believe. You know, I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a believer. I have faith in the Lord. So I didn't wear it. As simple as that. They go to the coach then. And they say, did you think about not letting him play because he refused to wear that jersey? And thankfully, the coach said, absolutely not. I respect my players' decisions. Whether they want to wear it or don't want to wear it, he was playing regardless. But you should have seen the uproar, and maybe some of you have, of all the kind of news articles that came out about this, how he should not have been able or allowed to play because he refused to be a a team player with the rest of the team. They wanted him to lose out on his money, on, on doing his job, on making a living, all because he refused to wear this jersey that celebrated right, gay and lesbians. And more and more, brothers and sisters, this is the kind of thing we're going to see happening in our world. Right? People are going to pressure you to conform or else you're going to lose out big in this world. You're going to lose out in your job or it's going to be something much greater. And as this happens, you know what else you're going to start to see? You're going to start to see ministers have to stand up and take sides as well. Right, right now, many can remain silent. But there's going to come a time when you have to stand up and you have to preach to your people about what you see going on and what's affecting them in the world. But then you're going to have other ones who stand up and, and are compromisers and are going to say, no, I think you should listen to the, to the state. Right? We, should, we should obey what they're saying is, is good and right. And they're, they're going to couch it in truth, but really all it is is they don't want to lose out on what they have. Right? They don't want to get tossed into prison. They don't want to lose all their goods and their fancy homes and clothes and cars. That is why they will compromise. But let us all see this, that trading truth for temporal prosperity will only ever lead to eternal death. That is what it only will ever lead to. And so I ask all of you this, when interacting and when participating in culture can no longer be done without, without idolatry, what will you do? When interacting and participating with culture can no more be done without idolatry, what will you do? I ask you here today, if the world brought people from the world who knew you, non-Christians, and brought them here before us, would they confuse you as being one of their own? After hearing this description, and I said, do they have the mark of the beast or the seal of Christ? Would they be able to decipher between you? I mean, do you split your mind and your deeds between what God calls us to do and what the world promotes and wants you to do? Right? Do you live life as a compromiser? Because know this, the promise is for those who do not compromise. Right? They have the promise of everlasting life. Those who remain faithful witnesses to the end. Right? It's not the compromisers, but those willing to endure whatever it must be to stand with Christ against the world. It is they who demonstrate that they have the seal. It is they who can have the assurance of their salvation. Right? Perhaps today, if any of you here struggle with assurance of salvation, this might be the reason why. This might be the reason why. Because as you look at yourself in the mirror, you see someone who resembles the world. As you look in the mirror and you stare at yourself, you see a compromiser. 
May this, brothers and sisters, cause us all to repent. May it cause us all to return to our first love and stop splitting our minds and our deeds between Christ and the world. This leads us then, brothers and sisters, to our third and final point, which is the wisdom of the church. I know this is the point everyone was waiting for. Look with me at verse 18, please. A third point, the wisdom of the church. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is 666. Now there are some out there who identify Ronald Reagan as the Antichrist. Do you want to know why? Because his full name is Ronald Wilson Reagan. Each name has six letters in it, so 666. But really what I want us to see there is that any attempt to identify one particular historical figure with this number and what is being described it usually leads to some kind of calculation, right? Some, some uh, number and numeral counting system. Uh, one of the, the, the more ancient ways of uh, using um, names and uh, matching them with numbers, which was used by many languages of the world in the ancient, in the ancient time, it was a method uh, called gematria. Okay, gematria. Uh, Take the Greek alphabet, for example. Uh, if you look at the first nine letters of the Greek alphabet, uh, what they represent then are numbers one through nine. And then you would take the next nine numbers of the Greek alphabet and they would represent numbers 10 through 90 and so on. And so that's kind of the method that people use in order to derive a name from this number. Um, now, one of the more popular... Uh, names that we hear associated with 666, right, is uh, the Emperor Nero. We spoke about Nero last week, who was emperor, who ended up dying in 68 uh, AD. But one of the reasons why Nero uh, is such a popular choice is because if you take his name in Greek and you transliterate, transliterate it to Hebrew, what you get is 666. Although, only with the defective spelling. But if you transliterate Nero Caesar from Greek to Hebrew, you get 666. And there are a lot of great brothers in Christ who, who see this as Nero, but I don't think that we ought to identify uh, this person with Nero or really any individual figure for that matter. And I'll give you a few reasons why. Uh, first, why we ought not to see Nero here... Um, is first because what we need to understand is that John is writing to Greek hearers. He's writing to Greek people. He's not writing to Hebrews. And so they don't understand Hebrew. Um, and so whenever John writes to Greek hearers in the book of Revelation here, he tells them that he's telling them something in the Hebrew. He, he makes it obvious for them because they don't know it. And so look at one example in uh, Revelation chapter 9, verse 11. Revelation chapter 9, verse 11. Uh, 
they have as king over them the angel of the bottomless pit. And here we go. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon. And in Greek, he is called Apollyon. So you see when it's... He tells them, right? If I want you to know Greek or Hebrew, I'm going to tell you what the Hebrew is. So that we ought to see what, what would have been read here is, this calls for wisdom. Let the one who is understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is 666 in Hebrew. Right? That's what we ought to have expected if that is what John was trying to do. Secondly, there is no limit to the names that you can make equal 666. In fact, one author, one commentator, sarcastically uh, calls Barney, the, the purple dinosaur from your childhood, right, the beast here that is being spoken about, because if you take the words cute purple dinosaur, it equals 666. And so, you know, just an example of what you can do to get anything to equal 666 and make anyone be the beast. Um, even if we take Nero, for example, Nero has a whole bunch of titles. Why Nero Caesar? Well, easy, because you try different titles until you back into the number that you're looking for. Right? For example, let me use my own name. If I was trying to match my name with a number, I could say, all right, let's look at Noah Olguin. That doesn't work. Let's try Noah David Olguin. That doesn't work. Let's try Noah David. That doesn't work. Let's try Pastor Noah David. If that doesn't work, Pastor Noah David Olguin. How about Mr. Olguin? And you just keep trying variations so you hit the number that you want. That's how easy it is to hit the number that you want, to get your guy to be that guy. In fact, one commentator formulated three rules that he sees all commentators use when they try to match one figure to this number. And the three rules he says are this. First, if the proper name doesn't yield, the t doesn't yield that number, add a title to it. Right? If Nero doesn't do it, add Nero Caesar. And if Nero Caesar doesn't do it, try another, another title, another title till you hit it. Secondly, he says, if the sum can't be found in the Greek, like Nero's can't be found in the Greek, well then try Hebrew. And if Hebrew doesn't work, try Latin. And then thirdly, what he also sees is that people are not too particular with the spelling of the names. Right? Those are kind of the three things that people do to, to get their guy to equal 666. But this is where he so astutely critiques this message, I think, or this method, excuse me, by using the analogy of a lock and a key. He says this, We cannot infer much from the fact that a key fits the lock if the lock is one in which almost every key will turn. Right? Makes sense, doesn't it? If a number was intended to fit by means of calculation, it would have been a rare exception. And as we think about it, what kind of wisdom does it take to do math? Right? He's not calling for mathematical wisdom. Right? He's not calling for that. Because it doesn't take someone spiritual to be able to do mathematics. Anyone is able, with a pen and a paper, to, to sum up these numbers and to get a name for the number. He's not calling for mathematical wisdom. But what type of number, or excuse me, what type of wisdom are we continually being called to as we read all the numbers in the book of Revelation? Not mathematical wisdom, rather spiritual wisdom. That is exactly what John is calling the hearers to in this text. He is calling us to spiritual wisdom. 
Which is why no early church father identified Nero with 666. And then I just call you, brothers and sisters, to remember once more, as we said earlier, who is Satan? Who is the first beast? Who is the second beast? What are they trying to do? They are trying to mimic God. The thrice holy God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, whose number would be what? Symbolically, seven, seven, seven. And so what do we see here? The triple sixes are a symbolic number intended to contrast the divine sevens. Seven, the number of perfection. Six, the number of imperfection and incompletion. Think back to Genesis 1. On day 6, creation was not complete. It was not completed till day 7. Six always falls short of seven. And so the beast tries to mimic God, but he falls short in his attempt to achieve divine perfection. Even though he tries to get people to believe that he has it and to pay homage to him and to follow after him. This then, brothers and sisters, is the wisdom that John is calling us to. It's the very same wisdom we read that Jesus called his people to. Saying what? False Christs are going to come. False prophets are going to come. They're going to enter the church. They're going to stand up in pulpits. They're going to proclaim the word, but they will deceive you. Use spiritual wisdom to know who they are. Use spiritual wisdom to be able to decipher what is true from what is false. Use the wisdom given to you in the Word to see who the imposter is and run from it and flee from it. He's saying you must be aware for the spirit of Antichrist is everywhere. Be wise everywhere. The spirit of Antichrist, the spirit of the false prophet, the spirit of the beast in the public square, at work, among your friends, in the universities, and sadly, brothers and sisters, in the church as well. So John is saying, don't compromise. The imitation is so close to the truth, but it is not the truth. It is not the truth. Stay in the divine sevens. Don't be misled by the imperfect, sinfully woeful sixes. That is what he is saying. That is what he is saying. One thing that I think oftentimes hangs people up is if you look at the end of uh, verse 18, it says, for it's a number of a man. And that number is 666. And so I think this is one reason why I think people think, hey, this has to be a person. Turn with me real quick to Revelation 21, verse 17. He measured its wall, 144 cubits by human measurement. The exact same Greek word is used in both places. Human measurement and the number of a man. Same Greek word being used in both places. So that what we need to see is that this man is a collective man. It's not just one figure. So that the better rendering of verse 18 is that this is the number of humanity. 
It is a number of humanity, yet it is sinfully an imperfect humanity, fallen humanity who the beast exercises domain and power and authority over. Right? It's all who partake of his failure that the name and this number signify. That is what is being described there. And so, brothers and sisters, as we draw to a close this morning, I call us all then to see this, that perfection only comes to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. By our own fallen nature, we are sinfully imperfect and we cannot attain to a perfection apart from Christ. Cannot attain perfection apart from our blessed Savior. Everything the world offers you, everything the governments of the world offers you, everything that the false beasts offer you, everything culture offers you, falls short of the divine perfection. But the gift of eternal life offered through the Son does not fall short. And so I say to you, do not be led by the second beast to worship the first, but rather be led by the Spirit who has been sent to point you to Christ who is your Savior. Christ who is able to save His people to the uttermost. As He saves all who draw near to God through Him. It is He alone who saves us out of our sin and out of our misery and from the curse of the law and grants to us future blessedness. But it only comes to those who believe. Believing in the Son is a drawing near to God. And those who draw near to God demonstrate they've been sealed with the Spirit and are protected under the divine sevens. Those who remain in unbelief and rebel against God represent those who have the mark of the beast and who have turned away from God and refuse Him and in fact sit under then the imperfect sinful sixes. The false prophets of this world, brothers and sisters, will look to draw us away from the Lord so that we will not be able to draw near to God. But may we have the wisdom that John is calling us to. May we be granted discernment Right to see what is going on in the world. And may we be granted faith to run from the world and from the governments of this world and from the culture of this world into the loving embrace of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, Your Word is like honey to the soul. It is so sweet and it is so nourishing and it feeds us. And we thank You for it. We ask, Lord, that You would help us to continue throughout the course of this day to feast upon Your Word and to digest Your Word. May we, by the aid of the Holy Spirit, be made and enabled to persevere in the faith until the end and to not be compromisers no matter what is required of us. That we remain in the divine sevens. For it is there that we have protection. And it is there that we find the promises in Jesus Christ. So Father, we come before You this day praying all these things in Christ's name. Amen.